Why don't you stand and we'll, for the reading of God's words, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll read out loud. You read along quietly in your own Bibles or following along on the screen, reading through verse 26. Hear God's word. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in the accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Cephas is Peter, by the way. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how could some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even be found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins." Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inspired words. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. You may be seated. I'm going to preach with a sense of urgency on the, this morning with ever preach with a bow tie. It's like having... Two hands clasped around your neck. <laughs> the call of this text in 1 Corinthians 15, there in verses 1 and 2, is to stand and to hold fast. Hold fast. You know, it's interesting. It's said that there are three types of tattoos that sailors get. One is an anchor, right? They like the anchor on the bicep. I was telling my kids about Popeye this week. They were quite confused. The second, the second are sailor's knots, different knots, which is kind of cool. I don't know how to tie knots other than the ones on my shoelaces. But the third is this, is they like to have tattooed primarily on their knuckles, eight letters, two words, hold fast. They like to ink those along their hands so that even as they are putting together the rigging and tying things to the boat, 
that they are reminded to create a good knot to make sure that the boat is going to hold fast. It's a reminder that when they're in a horrific storm and they're on in great danger and they're on the, the top of the ship and they're trying to keep it moving in the right direction, that they are to hold fast. This is the mindset of the merchant marine. It means being strong. It means not letting go even when things are difficult. And this is what Paul calls on the Corinthians to do, to lay hold of their faith and specifically in Christ's resurrection, to see the importance of living in the hope of Christ's resurrection. And this is the call that Paul is giving to you and I give to you this morning. Hold fast to the resurrection. I think of the the woman who I heard about who is going to see uh, a child who is dying. She's flying out to be with this child in his last days. It will be her fourth, fourth child or grandchild that has preceded her in death. And within each of these deaths, she says this, I don't know that I can take it anymore. Paul says to her, hold fast to the resurrection. I think of the family of the prodigal, of the wayward child. They have the righteous resolve that they will say, we will love that child. We, this child's rebellion will not outlast our love for them. We will pursue them to the ends of the earth. It's a beautiful thing, but guess what? Almost all parents who pursue the prodigal come to this realization. They may outrun me. They may run until I'm dead. And that means I might have to do this pursuit for the rest of my life. I'm, if we say to ourselves, I think I'm just going to love this kid no matter what they do. But in six months, a year, two years, you realize that the resistance may last longer than you have the strength for. Paul says, hold fast. Hold fast. The man is 70s whose body is now made of metal who wakes up every morning, not sure if it's going to be a good day or a bad day, the man who says, if they had their, their, their option, if God came to them and said, I can take you home today, or I can take you home in 10, day, 10 years, they would say, oh, you better take me home today. Paul says, hold fast. Why hold fast to the resurrection is the question, and that is what Paul is going to address with the rest of his section. Verses 1 and 2, he gives the call. Stand firm, hold fast to the gospel. But what he will address from verses 3 through verses 26, and what we want to look at this morning is Paul gives us the reasons as to why we hold fast to the resurrection. And he gives us three, and I give those to you this morning as well. And so if you can, you have an outline. If you're new here, you can fill that out as we go along. If you uh, do a really, really good job filling out that outline, then um, we will have you stand up with Dave Knight and take a picture with him since he is the best-dressed person in the room. So make sure if you filled out that sermon outline, you come running up afterwards, and we will make sure that beautiful picture outside in front of the church that you and Dave Knight get some time together. He didn't know that, though, but it's part of the service. Three reasons why to hold fast to the resurrection. The first is this. You hold fast to the resurrection because it is truth-telling. Because it is truth-telling. You hold fast because it is a means of telling the truth to the world about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says, hold fast to the resurrection. Why? Because it's a nice idea? Because it makes him feel really good inside? It's better than the alternatives? Those things are probably all true. 
But no, Paul says, hold fast to the resurrection. Why? Because it is true. Now, every this is different. Christianity is, is different from every other religion in the world. Every other religion is based on a particular man's teachings. Some great founder who popped up one day and said, listen, this is the teachings and how you can know God. And if you follow me, and if you follow these teachings, it will lead to a better blessed life with uh, God in the future. But that's not what the gospel says. Christianity is different. It's not based on the teachings of Jesus. Jesus said, I did not come necessarily to teach. He did some teaching, and that's well, that's great, and we should listen to his teaching. Jesus came, first and foremost, to win for us the salvation. He didn't say, if you would just follow me a little bit, then life will get better for you. Here's six ways for your best life now. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I have come to accomplish your salvation fully and finally. You see, the gospel is good news, literally. And you don't make the news. The news is not something you simply follow as if, like, it's just a couple things that you got to do. No, the news is something you believe and you trust in as a fact. So what Paul is saying here very clearly is this, is the physical bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is what the, all the gospel and what Christianity hinges on, if it is true or not. And he makes his case here. And he, I'm going to give you two things that he says to us about his case about the truth of the resurrection. And the first is this. Paul says that the heart of the gospel is that Jesus, it says there, was raised from the dead. In other words, what he says is there's an empty tomb. There ain't nobody in it. There was a dead body there, and it's not there anymore. We believe in Easter, some people say. This is what often, this is what I would say secular, liberal version of Christianity says. But so many churches espouse this, is they, they love the Easter resurrection idea as a spiritual thought, essentially. As a nice idea story about how we can have spiritual resurrection in our hearts, and that we, if we would just, we just love that story because it puts up within us this loving glow of resurrection spirit, and it'll get us going again. And that's what the resurrection means to us. That's ridiculousness. This is the kind of silliness that was espoused in many of our hymns, particularly in the revivalistic time of the 19th and earliest 20th century in American revivalism and in American history. For instance, one hymn says this, He lives, he lives. And I'm so sorry if this is your favorite hymn. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me. He talks with me along the narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Who cares? Who cares that you have the warm and fuzzies, that you have some sort of spiritual awakening inside? The basis on which we know he lives is not that you have some nice feeling in your heart because you just know he lives. We know he lives because the tomb ain't nobody there, because it was empty. You see, Paul provides here what is known as an early creed in the first century. It goes like this. You know the Apostles' Creed, which was developed over the next couple centuries, what we understand is in the earliest decades of the Christian church, they had particular lines that they would say, this, this is the microcosm. This is the core, the principle of what we believe. And he said it there, that Jesus came and died. He was crucified. He was buried. And he rose from the dead. That was the creed. That was the creed. And that is what the Christians believed. And Paul says, he's saying this within 20 years, we believe, here in 1 Corinthians 15, for within 20 years of Jesus' life on earth. 
But not only that, even some of the most liberal scholars of today, some of you may be familiar with the name Bart Ehrman. He is a scholar at Duke University, a number of other big-name scholars such as uh, James Dunn and Gerd Ludman. These are guys who don't even believe in Christianity. They don't believe in the Bible, yet they would say this, that this creed, this statement of that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead, that this was a statement the earliest church, the early church said from its earliest days. Within three years of Jesus' death, the early church was circulating this creed. Now, what is, that, what is the significance of that? If they're saying within a year, two years, three years, and like we know from Acts, for those of us that believe the Bible, immediately within a couple of weeks of Jesus' death and resurrection, they're saying that Jesus rose. If you're living in that time, you know what you can do? You can go and say, you know what, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to go to the empty tomb, and I'm going to prove you wrong. You see... The resurrection didn't happen in some massive city or in just some generic place where it wasn't known where Jesus was buried. Jesus was buried in Jerusalem. These are the type of towns where, like, people have grown up there forever and ever and ever. Like, your grandma and your grandma's grandma, and everybody knows where everybody lives and where everybody's buried. I remember going back to Michigan one time when I was, like, 9 or 10 years old with my family, and we went back to one of those towns where my lineage came from. And my grandmother, we spent unbelievable amount of times in cemeteries looking at people, previous relatives who had died. For the life of me, I didn't understand as a nine-year-old why in the world we were wandering around a cemetery. But this is what people in small towns do, right? We know where we came from. This is the truth of Jesus as well. Jerusalem ain't some big town. We know where Joseph's grave, of Arimathea's grave is. We know where his kin are buried. And if Jesus was buried there, we can go find where he was buried and say, you guys are lying because I see a dead body in there. But they don't do that. The tomb is empty. Even, even the people who hated Jesus, right? We see the, the guards, when Jesus is resurrected, the Pharisees go, you know what? We've got to deal with this because there ain't nobody in the tomb. And so we've got to come up with a way to deal with this. And so what do they do? They pay off the soldiers to say, they stole his body. They stole his body. Second, Paul tells us that not only is the tomb empty, but there's eyewitnesses to it. We're told in verse 6 that there's literally hundreds of people who saw Jesus with their very eyes. In some case, touched them with their hands. There were, it says over 500 people. We, we, in just in the Gospels alone, we see 15 accounts given of Jesus revealing himself to various people in his post-resurrection state. That's the reason why Paul can say at the, at the end of verse 6, all the people who saw Jesus raised from the dead, you don't have to trust me. What does he say? You can go talk to them. A few of them are dead, he says. So we can't talk to them because they stayed dead. But the rest of them we can go talk to and find out that what we're saying is true. They saw him with their eyes. Now, these two things go together, empty tomb, eyewitnesses. N.G. Wright, who is a well-known and um, well-credentialed scholar in England, says this, says that there is only an empty tomb and there had been no sightings of Jesus. People would have believed that the body was simply stolen. But if it had only been eyewitnesses claiming to have seen him, but we could, they could go and find the body, then everybody would have seen that the disciples were hallucinating. Only if these two things were true could it be true. And they were both true. That the grave was empty, and that there's hundreds of people who are saying, we saw him. His body wasn't just t- stolen and taken to another grave. Simon Greenleaf, he's the head of Harvard Law School. This is a guy who knows how to investigate things. He was not a Christian. He never became a Christian. And he goes and he investigates Jesus Christ. And he, he, wanted, he said, you know what, that's it. 
We're putting an end to this once and for all. And he decides that he's going to go on an investigation, a, a study of the, of the various, uh, the proof of whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. And he decided he's going to try to disprove this entirely. Well, he studied all the documentations and what were his findings. And he said this, I quote, There is every reason to believe that the resurrection is a historically verifiable event. Why do we believe in the resurrection? Because it feels good? Because it's better than the alternatives? Because we like the idea of people who rise from the dead? No. Because it's true. Now you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay. Maybe, maybe if you have your reasons, that there's explanation for that. But I, I, people don't rise from the dead. Well, hold on. Paul says, that's nice, that's true. But we're not dealing with philosophy right now. And your presuppositions about what people can or cannot do, we're dealing with history. If you come in with the presupposition that no one can ever rise from the dead... You Listen, you can hold to that, but you're going to hold to that like spitting in the wind in the face of historical evidence. Because the evidence shows that there was a dead guy there, and then he wasn't there, and then he was showing up all over the place. That's what the evidence shows. Christianity is not about feelings. Some Christians even, some Christians say it's about my personal private ideals, but we don't treat other facts like that, do we? You know, we don't treat other historical facts like this. But, you know, we don't walk around saying, you know what, do you believe in 9-11? I'm not sure I believe in 9-11. If someone said that to you, then there are people who do this, right? We've got the conspiracy theorists. And you go, I've been there. There's two massive holes in the ground. There's all these people who can say, what would you say to that person who completely spits in the wind of the historical evidence? You're nuts. You're nuts. We believe in the resurrection because it's true. The problem of believing the resurrection today so often is that we don't like to build our, you know, our convictions on facts. We like it on feelings. The doctor says you have cancer. But that's not a very convenient truth for your life. You're not going to feel really good about that prognosis, are you? But if you ignore it, it means something damaging to your life. So you say, man, and here's the truth. Like, we, this is the world we live in. We are not living in a world in which we deal with fact and fiction. We live in a world of what? Facebook, where every argument that you use posted on Facebook, how do we respond? Like or dislike? Not true or untrue. Like or dislike? I feel like the resurrection is true. No one cares. Is it true? Is it true? So we hold fast to the resurrection first and foremost because it's history. Because it's truth. Second, second, hold fast to the resurrection because it is purpose-filling. It is purpose-filling. Verse 13, Paul says this, If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And then he says later on in verse 19, If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people to be pitied. Because we're not enjoying it. And he goes to his logical conclusion in verse 32, the well-known famous statement by Paul that says this, Listen, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry for what? Tomorrow we die. So who cares? We might as well enjoy what we can in this life today. You see, if there is no resurrection, life is pointless. It is meaningless. They, over and over again, Paul says the life is vain. Our faith is vain. Your life is vain. Nothing matters. And frankly, life is nothing but a cruel joke. This is a theme that is brought up over and over again in our own modern literature 
The existentialist wants us to face up to life without God and just say, you know what, just close your eyes and enjoy it. And this is where we get that mindless dribble about something like, it's all about the journey, not the destination. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, then there's the, the, the nihilist who shouts that life is meaningless, and then they go shoot themselves. They say there is no value, there is no moral, there is no purpose to anything, and if death eats it all up in the end, well, that sounds about right. That's logical. C.S. Lewis has combated this, and he says this, to those who say that life is all there is, and that everything I feel is just my genetic programming, he's mimicking, essentially, what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. He says, if you really believe life is just an accident, when you die, we rot. You might as well decide simply to have a good time at as much as possible. But, Lewis said, goes on to say, you can't, except in the lowest animal sense, enjoy this life knowing these things. You can't, for example, be in love with a girl if you know that all the beauties both of her person and of her character are but a momentary and accidental pattern produced by the collision of atoms and that your own response to them is only a sort of psychic phosphorescence arising from the behavior of your genes. You understand what he's saying there? That you say, I'm going to enjoy life, but then that whole thing of like taking your actual beliefs to their conclusion and saying, you know what, I love this person in front of me, but deep down I know it's really just all these atoms colliding, and it's all kind of created this chemical reaction to me, that when I see her, I feel this certain way to her, and that's all it is. Ultimately, she needs nothing to me other than the discharge of atoms or of chemistry, chemicals in my brain. If life is all there is, life is all there is, if there's no resurrection from the dead, if Jesus didn't rise, then it's all meaningless. It's all pointless. All the things you love and appreciate, all your relationships have no purpose and no worth. Now, let's say if you live out of that worldview, it's going to greatly affect your sense of purpose, don't you think? It's going to rob you of a purpose-filled life. It says to Mother Mother Teresa, you know that great life you lived where you lived in the hovels and you gave your life? It's all wasted. It's all nothing. You You wasted your life. Read recently an article, but the main proposition was this. It was this, that the Christianity is a better narrative for explaining life than atheism. And the article gave this illustration to explain its point. In 2009, it said, Dr. Robert Vanderwood had a 20-year-old Down syndrome son who walked through his neighbor's yard and walked over a decayed septic tank. And the septic tank caved in. And his son went crashing down into this muck and this mire. Robert rushed to his aid, aid, and he sees that his son is going under and is, is, is being caught up within the sewage. And he sees that it seems, appears that the sewage is about nine feet deep. And so he ties to, tries to fish his son out to reach him and pull him out. And he can't do it, so he finally does what every good father would do. He takes a deep breath and he dives in. And in so doing, he saves his 20-year-old Down syndrome son. He's able to push him out, but in the process he loses his own life. The article, the writer said this, atheism has no explanation for that. He said, now both understand that both an atheist dad and a Christian dad would jump in and save their son. This is not an issue of who's a better dad. There are many atheists who are better dads than Christian dads. Some of you have one of those Christian dads. And there's some atheists next door who are better. The issue is who is being living out their worldview consistently. The article goes on to say, but Darwinian determinism says that the strong prevail over the weak there is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no right, there is no wrong, there is ultimately no love, and that's what atheism is taken to its logical conclusion says. In other words, to logically live out of your, what you believe if you're an atheist is you would say, why would the Father jump in? 
That's foolishness to die for another person. But Christianity offers a different narrative. And the narrative of Christianity is this. And only in Christianity do we see that we have a strong father who dives into the sewage of this world, who takes on our flesh and dies on our behalf. But that is an objective truth that we can follow. And in other words, when you follow that truth, when that is your worldview and your paradigm, it makes sense to lay your life down for other people. It makes sense. When you realize that, it changes you. That God dove into death and dove into the sewage and died for you, your, it means your life is not in vain. It means your life has purpose. It has eternal reverberating effects. I want to go back to the very beginning of the Bible here. In Genesis 1, God creates us and he speaks into us our purpose, our meaning, our significance. He says, you are very good. You are made in my image. And what we have done in sin is we have separated ourselves from that voice. We have separated from ourselves from the voice that says, it speaks to us of our worth and of our value. But here's the beauty of the, of the truth of the, of the Bible, is that God spoke again. And he spoke with beauty and power because he comes and lays his life down and is resurrected from the dead to save you and I. You know what that says? Just like he says in Genesis 1, you are worth this much that I would give my son to die for you. That, is, that means your life is significant. That if God himself would take on flesh, it means your life has purpose. It means you are valuable. It means you mean something. You're not simply just a piece of, of, of atoms here in this world that is here for a moment and gone tomorrow. It is, a, it is a life worth dying for. This is what missionaries and Christians have understood to live out their faith. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when I talked about the, the missionaries who would go to Nigeria and the church in which behind it there's 58 graves and 38 of them are children one to three years old of the parents who knew their children were going to die if they went to the mission field and they did it anyway. Some of the early Christians that went to Africa, they would store their stuff. They would, they would take all their stuff over in what? Suitcases? Beautiful trunks? What? They would take them over in coffins. Because the average lifespan of a missionary who went into Africa during that time was less than a year. They knew they were going to die. They planned to die, and they would anyways. Why? Because they knew their life was significant and had meaning, and they knew even their death was significant and had meaning. The resurrection, the whole fast of the resurrection, because not only is it truth-telling, but it's purpose-filling. It tells you who you are. It tells you the per- your life is purposeful. Third, finally, Hold fast to the resurrection because it is hope-giving. Hold fast to the resurrection because it is hope-giving. We have given, I've given some specific and significant time and attention this morning to engaging with the historical and intellectual evidential reasons for the resurrection. Now I want to address more of the spiritual and the emotional. You see, the resurrection addresses our deepest emotional and spiritual needs, and it gives us hope. And there are two types of people in particular that Paul points to this morning in this text to whom the resurrection gives hope. First, it gives hope for those who sin. And last counting, that's all of us. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins. Paul says one of the implications of the fact of the resurrection is if there is no resurrection, then you still owe something to God. Jesus came and dealt with the greatest problem that we have. You know what that is? That's sin. And that we, sin is when we take the place of God and we tell God to get out of our lives. And that is the greatest problem we have because it created the, the rift of separation between us and God. Reconciliation with God, peace and restoration with God is one of the greatest needs that we have. 
The longing to be back near the Father, to hear that voice of the Father once again. But our sin has kept us from that, has kept us from that, has separated us from that. We need something to bring us back together. Ernest Hemingway tells us the famous story in one of the short stories called The Capital of the World, where he writes about a father and a son who are estranged from each other. And the father goes to the city where he believe, the young man is believed to be, be living. The young man's name is Paco. And he goes to that city and he puts an article or a notice in the newspaper that says this, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. The next day, in Hemingway's story, 800 men show up. They arrive at the hotel. What's Hemingway communicating? The longing we have to be restored to the Father. To know the forgiveness of the Father, that we are okay with him. To hear his voice over us once again. The greatest need of the human heart is to be forgiven and restored to God. And this is exactly what the gospel is about. It is the mission about how God came to restore us sinners who had rejected him and removed ourselves from him, had run from him, and yet Christ came. He dies for our rebellion. He comes and dies for our treason. He pays the penalty for our hostility. And in our sin, he puts himself. Sin is when we put ourselves in the place of God. Redemption is when God puts himself in our place. And that's what he does to bring us forgiveness and love and affection. But here's the question. The question that comes even after the cross is how do we know that 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 penalty has been paid. Jesus died, okay. Does that mean I'm forgiven? Did did his death really cover all my sin? Did his death really assuage God's wrath? Did his death really do all that was necessary to reconcile me to God? How do we get that question answered? The answer is in the resurrection. The answer to the resurrection proves and shows that Jesus paid it all, that it is indeed finished. There is nothing left for you to pay. Let me, and let me illustrate it this way. Even down to a couple hundred years ago, if you had debts and you couldn't pay those debts back, where would you go? You'd go to debtor's prison, a specific prison for people who had debts. Now, how would you know that your debt had been paid when you got out of prison? And so it is with your sins. How do you know Jesus paid for your sins when death is defeated? When Jesus gets sprung from the grave, it means all your debts, all your sins have been paid for. Let me give you an even more, a more pedantic, maybe a more modern illustration. Let's say you, it was Easter week, and so some of you went into TJ Maxx or your other favorite discount store. And you went into TJ Maxx, and you went in there, and you decide, this is the outfit I'm going to buy. This is the dress I'm going to buy. And you take it to the register, and you swipe your credit card. That's the cross. That's the payment. But then as you're leaving, you're walking out of the store. They have a security guard, and the security guard says, how do I know that's your dress? How do I know that's been paid for? What do you do? You pull out the receipts. The resurrection is the receipt. And you know what? Most often, you're going to have to show that receipt to yourself when you whisper condemnation to yourself and when the devil whispers condemnation to you. When the devil comes to you and says, you will not leave, death will cling to you, you pull out the receipt and you say, I am free. It is paid for. Death has no longer a hold on me. My sins are paid for. You let me go. You got no hold on me. You point to the resurrection Hold fast, hold fast to that receipt. So it's hope for the sinner to know that your sins are completely paid for. And last, it's hope for those who sorrow. It's hope for those who sorrow. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, Paul says. 
Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied. Paul says, if there is no resurrection, all of our loved ones are dead and gone, and that's it. There is no changing it. There is no reversing it. There is no turning it back. Done. Finished. We'll see you later. What is tough in this world is the irreversibility of our lives, isn't it? Stuff happens. We blow it. You can't take it back. I think of Brian Regan going to, a, he sees a woman and he thinks that maybe she's pregnant and he goes, when's the baby due? And she goes, what baby? And he goes, oh no, I can't take it back. Isn't that the awfulness of life is you cannot reverse life. You cannot pull it back. Just think about aging, right? You can't stop aging. Listen, you can stick whatever you want to, whatever chemicals you want to in those creases in your face, it ain't going to stop you from dying. You can drink the purple juice, the pink juice, the green juice, the rainbow juice, you're still going to die. That is the hard facts of this world. And listen, it is ridiculous how much money we spend pumping chemicals into our body all so we can go, you know what, I, can, I think I can get a couple more days in. I think I can hold it off. Jesus says, not by one hour can you add to your life with all your worry, all your working out, all your pill popping, all your supplement taking, all your Botox injecting. You see the picture? You know what's frightening? is to see the picture of a high school reunion and see the effects of aging. I mean, you see these people and you're like, oh my gosh. (laughs) What happened to these people? My wife and I are from, both from South Florida, and so we have, we have the, the, the advantage of also, like, there's the sun effect. And even at, the, at 28, you're looking at these people and going, what, what kind of leather are you wearing? Oh, that's your skin. What has happened to you? You look at that and you go, listen, I, I think we're all going to die. We're not looking so good. That is the truth of life, right? You cannot reverse it. You can't stop it. Death's coming. Death and taxes, right? The glorious word, though, right? Verse 20. That all stinks. Verse 20 changes it all. But Christ has been raised. Death could not hold Jesus, and death cannot now hold those who hold on to Jesus. And that means because of the resurrection, we have an unimaginably glorious future. Yes, you might decay. And your 20-year anniversary picture or reunion pictures will look worse than your 10-year anniversary reunion pictures. But listen, at the end of all things, it's going to get reversed. Not only, you, you see, it's not just that you wake up from death and eternal life and you're like walking around your, your 79-year-old body, the body you died in. What do you get? You get a new and glorious body. It gets reversed. All the effects of the fall get reversed. And not only that, but the, the death resurrection is put to end the permanency the irreversibility of death. The longing of our hearts, one of the worst things that we can experience is this longing is to say, and why death is so terrifying to us. When we say, I'm not, I'm, afraid of, I'm not afraid of death. Of course you're afraid of death. Because we hate the separation. The separation relationally means that there's, the love that we have is always, it's always temporal. It's always, we're always going to be torn from the people that we love. But the resurrection means that all of our goodbyes in this life will be hellos in the next life. They'll be reversed. In fact, look how Jesus views death. In Luke chapter 8, there's a man who has lost his daughter. And Jesus comes into the house, and the father and the family and all these other people, their relatives, are mourning and weeping. And what does Jesus say? Chill. She's just sleeping. That is Jesus, the irreversibility of death for the Christian. Sleep is not permanent. Sleep is but a moment. Mike Ortiz says every Easter he reads the story by a man named Thomas Schmidt, and here's how that story goes. 
It was just a little creek, no more than 15 feet wide. The horses were pulling a hay wagon. They bolted and plunged into the creek, which was swollen from snow melts. Everyone jumped off the wagon just in time. Almost everyone. A nine-year-old little girl and her mother clinging to the wagon and to each other were thrown to the water, and then they were swept apart by the current. The mother was later found face down by the bank in utter shock. The little girl paddled desperately for 100, 200 yards past the outstretched hand of one would-be rescuer, and then she was taken under. It all took less than a minute. Her body was found downstream a few hours later. Her name was Susanna. And Thomas Schmidt writes, she was my only child. We adored each other, this remarkable child and this flawed father. Susanna was affectionate, wise, funny, brilliant, a delight. And then one evening a telephone call came with the news that she was not coming home. She would not get off the airplane the next day and run into my arms. She would not tell me about her vacation or tell me about anything ever again. Never again would I hear that one precious word, daddy, spoken in her little girl voice. She would never read another book, never ride her bike, never celebrate her 10th birthday or go on a date or grow into womanhood. What is, what is a dad who has take, to take his nine-year-old little girl and lay her in the grave, what does he hold fast to? He holds fast to the resurrection so that when he kisses that little girl for the last time and lies her in the grave, he doesn't have to say goodbye forever, but he says, good night, sweetheart. I will see you in the dawn of eternal morning. For those who are in Christ Jesus, for us and our children, even if we face the worst thing that this life can happen and give us, these things come untrue because of the resurrection. They become reversed. You see, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, there's a famous song, a song that Paul apparently knows in verses 45 55 and 45, 55, 54, goodness, and 55. He says this, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Do you see the victory of the resurrection? It's not just that death is removed. It's that death is swallowed up. In other words, let me say, give you the image this way. Imagine a piece of pie that's on a table. You can get rid of that piece of pie in two ways. You could knock it off the, t- off the table, or you can eat it. Knocking it off the table gets rid of it, but it has no value to you. You have no victory of sorts. But if you eat it, it gives you life and energy. In other words, what that image is saying, and what Paul is saying, is we have victory not just over death, but death is now a part of the victory. It is now the entrance into life eternal. It is now entrance into life with Jesus for all time. Because death is going to be reversed. We're going to get new bodies and new life. I'm going to close this morning with this account from Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. You know, the famous out, uh, account there of Aslan, who's the Christ figure. He dies, and then he's risen. And this is when Lucy and Susan, two young girls, encounter him after he's risen. And Lucy runs up to him and she says, oh, you're real. You're real, oh, Aslan. And both the girls fling themselves upon him and they cover him with kisses. But what does it all mean, asked Susan. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still that she did not know. Her knowledge goes back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness 
into the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation, a deeper magic. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table, the place of death, would crack, and death itself would start working backwards. That is what happens in the resurrection. And then he says this, Aslan said, now let's get to business. I feel like roaring. That is the role of the church with the gospel. The roar of the gospel of the resurrection that says that death is being pushed back. That life is coming. So would you hold fast? Would you cling to the gospel? Would you cling to the cost? Would you cling to the receipt of the resurrection? Flannery O'Connor, the great Georgia writer, said it so well. She said this, if the resurrection isn't true, then just try and enjoy the few minutes you got left in this world because that is it. But if the resurrection is true, then run to Jesus right now. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I, I, I find it so foolhardy that we probably only give a day to reflect on re- the resurrection. The powerful truth. Imagine, Lord, I, would, I just can't imagine the courage that we would have, the joy we would have if we woke up every day and preached to ourselves the beautiful truth of the gospel that you rose, that you're bringing life eternal Lord, I pray for those this morning who are struggling, who are having a difficult time holding fast, whether it be a marriage that is kicking them, children that are driving them crazy, a body that is aching, a spirit that is sorrowful because of the loss of a loved one. Lord, I think about the the couple that came up to me after the first service and said they're going to go to the graveside of their daughter that they buried 30 years ago. Lord, there are, everybody in this room probably has that kind of experience. The loss of a loved one. And Lord, we are not looking for some saccharine, sweet romanticism. Lord, it still hurts today. It hurts. It is painful. And death cries out that this is not the way it's supposed to be. But the resurrection cries out that, God, you're reversing what death has done. And so even in our tears today, we can rejoice. We can look forward to the hope that we have in all of eternity that you're going to raise us to give us new bodies, to give us new life, to give us new relationships, and give us joy in Jesus for all of eternity. We thank you in the precious name of your son who entered death for us to drag us right out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.